Good morning. My name is Luis Marin. A lot of you know me as Luis Marin, and I am a church member. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing the fifth principle of the fifth commitment of a church member, and that is I will lead my family to be healthy church members. The Bible uses the word family and household approximately 234 times, and it's a very important subject. We know that in the beginning, God instituted the family and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. I believe we have done a really good job with this, being that over 7 billion people now inhabit the earth. The family is the essential building block of society and is the strength of the church. Throughout scripture, we can see where God has always been interested in the family. When God called Abraham, he and his family responded to that call. When he got ready to destroy humanity, because of sin, he saved Noah and his family. Korah, issues with leadership of Moses, cost them and his entire family their lives when the earth opened up and swallowed them up. And in the New Testament, we see where Cornelius and his family were filled with the Holy Ghost and were baptized at Peter's preaching. Lydia and her family believed and were also baptized. Paul and Silas witnessed to a prison guard at midnight, and his family were baptized. When the Holy Ghost was poured out in Acts chapter 2, that the promise is for you and to your children. And if I can say it this morning, the promise of the Holy Ghost and salvation is for us, is for you, and is for your children. Amen. Now, just as God instituted the physical family in the beginning, he has also instituted a spiritual family called the church. The church is not this building, but the church is made up of people who have placed their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we can say that it's the people in the building. Amen. I thank God that he led me to a place called the church where I heard the good news of the gospel and my life was saved in that of my family. Amen. Amen. So it was in the church that I received my salvation experience. It was in the church where I learned separation. It was in the church where I learned principles for Christian living. It was in the church where I was taught to be a better husband and to how to care for my children and to raise them up. I had the privilege of baptizing three of my three children and raise them up to be God-fearing and faithful members of the church. And the church has given me the confidence to know that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Amen. When we were born physically, we were born into a physical family. But when we are born again, we are born into a spiritual family, the church. John chapter 1 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Amen. So as we are a church, we are called out. We are a called out people from every nation, every tribe, and every language. Amen. This spiritual family is not bound by ethnicity, gender, or social standings. Right. We as the church are one this morning. Amen. 
I love the church today, and that is you, my brothers and sisters. Everything I am and everything that I have been able to accomplish, God has done it through the influence of the church. The Kentucky State flag has a motto that reads, United we stand, divided we fall. And my prayer this morning is that we would unite as a church and be the powerful and influential institution that God designed us to be and be used in these last days to accomplish his will on the earth. As a healthy church member, as a husband, and as a father, I pledge to lead my family to be healthy church members. I will pray. We will pray together for our church and the leadership. We will worship together in this church. We will serve together in this church. And we will raise our future generation in the church. And we will ask God to help us to fall in love with the church because he gave his life for us. Thank you and God bless you. Amen. Would you please stand and would you give the Lord a hand because he is a savior. Amen. And he has brought us into fellowship in the church. I, I am a church member. And it matters that you're a part of the church in heaven and that you're a part of the church on earth because it has to be both, not one or the other. This year the focus has been on becoming a church member this first season of the year. And I've talked about a number of aspects of the church. You've already heard people talk about being a functioning church member, a unifying church member, I will not let my church be about my preferences and conviction. I will pray for my uh, church leaders and I will lead my family to be healthy church members. There's one more to go. This year I have preached, I am a church member, a glorious church, a mobilized church. A, at the business meeting I spoke on a nurturing church. I preached on a unified church and I'd like to speak on another characteristic of the church today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations chapter 3. And if you have a physical Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Or just look at the screens. I appreciate the Lord and His kindness in my life and in my family. Because the family was God's first church. Thank the Lord today because there is a presence of the Lord that's running deep into the hearts of people. And the presence of God flows to empty vessels, to people who recognize their great need of God. So if you will increase your capacity for God to flow into your life today with strength, with healing, with salvation, you'll find God to be strong in your life. But if you're here today standing or sitting in a moment, and you're kind of, you've got it all together in yourself. That proud, self-sufficient attitude resists the grace of God that flows into your life. So would you open your heart to God? Would you make room for Him, enlarge your capacity for Him to speak to you? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His 
compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. From this passage and others, I'd like to speak to you this morning on the compassionate church. You may be seated. Simply stated, compassion is suffering with another. Compassion is a feeling with and for other people. One person said that compassion is what makes a person feel pain when someone else hurts. In our society, there is a lot of compassion and kindness that is demonstrated every day. But there is also a lot of cruelty that is occurring in our culture. And it's actually permeated our culture. I know you can read the news for yourself, and I don't make a habit of overdoing what's common to everyone today because we are more connected to what is going on all over the world than ever before. I know that bad news sells, But bad news is still evident and obvious in our world. It's happening all the time. The news is replete with stories of murder. It seems like the value of human life is plunged lower than the value of oil. Maybe, you know, what happens in a culture like the United States and all over the world is somewhat the result of the hardening of the hearts of people. Maybe that occurs when a nation is guilty for allowing there to be over 55 million babies aborted since the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973. When I read about women's cars being carjacked, and women shoved to the ground or shot, a car stolen, a senseless murder over a few dollars, something very unimportant in an argument that breaks out between two individuals. When I read about parents killing their children, about religious militants beheading, burning, destroying others. When I read about hate crimes against people of whatever descent they are, in our own county, rocked by the murders of domestic dispute, all of that is shocking. Yesterday and through the night, the shootings in Denmark. Our own church member, Dan McHugh, was now moved to be with his parents in Ohio as he continues to try to recover. Was shot in an attempted robbery and he still has tremendous complications from that. What a senseless thing to an innocent man walking to his car in the evening at a grocery store. And I know that we get more news today than ever before. But violence seems to me to be more rampant than ever and not just because it's a sermon illustration. And what we know is really just at the tip of the iceberg of what really goes on. This past week, my wife and I were in Tupelo, Mississippi at Tupelo Children's Mansion. It is an amazing ministry of the United Pentecostal Church. It connects the hearts of God, the heart of God, to the broken heart of a child, is what I tweeted earlier in the week. We met some new mansion residents who have been there between a week and maybe about six months. We toured the campus and saw where the children live. And as we listened to them tell the stories of children, they really try to be careful the board members, they gave us specifics. But children that are starved, 
held captive, beaten, kept in cages, used for pornography and prostitution. As I listened to those stories of real kids, I saw them, heard their stories. I became very angry and my heart was broken for those children. But cruelty has always existed in the heart of sinful people. The first murder in the Bible was a result of domestic abuse when Cain kills his brother Abel. Joseph is sold into slavery by his half-brothers and they lie to Joseph's dad, to their dad, to cover it up and to make him believe his son has been killed by a wild beast all those years. Backslidden Jews in the Bible made their children pass through the fire. Psalm 106 describes their cruelty. 106.37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. They shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. That's the kind of stuff that took place. When you read Romans 1, I, I love what Romans 1, 2, and 3, those three chapters teach us about society and our need for God. But the Bible said their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder. They invent new ways of sinning. They were heartless and have no mercy. Paul told Timothy that in the last days, the days we live in now, that they would be very difficult times. That people would love only themselves. That they would consider nothing sacred. That they would be unforgiving. That they would be unloving. They would slander others. They would have no self-control. They would be cruel and they would hate what was good. They would betray their friends. They would be reckless. In the Old Testament, the Bible uses the word brutish, brutish about people who are animalistic in the way they treat others. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Jude speak of men that are brute beasts and they speak evil of the things that they do not understand. The Epimenides, a Cretan philosopher, spoke of the Cretans and Paul said it was true that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. The Bible would teach that there is a beast within us because out of us come wars and fightings. It is that beast that must be slain at an altar of repentance. Otherwise, there will be cruelty and all kinds of violence in our world. That was the world before the flood, and that seems to be our world at the close of human history. All of that exists. But on the other hand, whenever you see compassion, whenever you feel love, I want you to understand that it emanates, it comes out of the heart of God, and it flows through the heart of godly people. The Bible is very clear. That God is love. And compassion is a commodity. It is a component of God's love. I want to introduce you today to the God of compassion in the Word of God. In Exodus chapter 34. Under the law, when the Lord revealed Himself to Moses, He passed by him and He said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, 
I know there's more, but I want to stop there for now. Psalm 78 recalled the compassion of God. Israel wandering in the wilderness. Psalmist said their heart was not right with God. They were not steadfast in His covenant. But He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. He destroyed them not. Yea, many a time He turned His anger away and did not stir up all of His wrath. Even when they deserved it, the psalmist said, God did not destroy them. If we received what we deserved from God... Not one person would be in this room uncondemned. If we received what we deserve from God, none of us would be able to stand in the presence of God. It is only by the mercy of God, the extension of His compassion. The psalmist said, He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away. Your only hope and your only Appeal before a righteous God is to appeal to His compassion. Amen. That's the only hope you have is that God will look on you and look on me and say that not because of my righteousness, but in spite of my inability to be righteous without Him, He is merciful to me. He is a God that is full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. The psalmist said, have mercy upon me. If you come to God and you need something from Him, your plea should be, oh God, just as I am, I come to you, oh God, and I say, oh God, have mercy on me. I need the compassion of God. Psalm 111, the Lord is gracious And full of compassion. Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all of His works. The overriding, the overarching attitude of God is that He has tender mercy toward people that desperately need it. No, I need to give you a parenthetical statement. Because some people misunderstand grace and mercy. People misunderstand the compassion and long-suffering of God. The same scripture in Exodus that spoke of the mercy and graciousness of God also tells us in verse 7 that God will by no means clear the guilty. He visits iniquity on the fathers and upon the children. In other words, God is not looking the other way, ignoring it, but He is giving you time. He is merciful saying, I know you deserve judgment now, but my judgment is deferred. I put it off because I am compassionate. I understand that you need to turn to me. And although God has a right to destroy us instantly on the act of sin, He is patient to wait on us. He is patient when we don't pray like we should pray. He doesn't instantly kick us out of His presence. When we're not holy as we should be holy, He doesn't immediately act on His right to act. But He is reaching for us in love. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I am thankful that my God is a compassionate God. That He sees us. He knows our frailty. He knows that we need His patience and compassion. It's not that anything goes with God. It's just that whatever goes with Him, it is long-suffering 
It is mercy. It is compassion that withholds his hand, giving us time to get our act together and turn our hearts to him. It's important that when we come to God, especially when we've lived for the Lord a while, and we feel like we're kind of getting some components of holiness together in our lives, it's very important that we do not appear to God and within ourselves become self-righteous. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray. Godly, God-fearing people, church-going people, they went to the same church at the same time. They went up to the temple, that holy place. One was a Pharisee, one was a publican, a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed. The Bible says, these are the words of Jesus, He prayed thus within himself. Kind of wasn't really praying to God. He was praying within himself. And he said, God, I thank thee that I'm such a great guy. No, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And he kind of evidently glanced over at that other guy that was in church with him also praying. Even as that publican. Because you know those tax collectors, they're all crooked. They're all changing changing money with the Roman government under the table. And they're ripping off all the taxpayers. And this Pharisee fasted twice a week, lived by these strict laws. Paul called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This Pharisee is looking down his long nose at this poor publican who has come to God. And he told the Lord, the the Pharisee did... I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I possess. Everybody say that's good. But the publican, standing afar off, he was evidently over in the corner of the room, so to speak. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He smote his chest, and his prayer was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He did not come to God on the basis of his goodness of his track record, of his ties. He did not come to God on the basis of his fasting. It was good that he did those things, but his attitude stunk in the nostrils of God. Jesus said that this man, this publican, went home justified rather than the other guy that probably lived a better life. For if you exalt yourself, you're going to be abased. But if you will humble yourself, you will be exalted. I'm telling you that we come to God on the basis of the mercy of God. We come without appeal that the blood of Jesus Christ would cover us from sin. For we deserve judgment and death in His mercy. God has compassion on us. God's compassionate nature was best seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He was moved with compassion. The Bible said in Matthew chapter 9, 35, and went out into the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Something in the heart of Jesus saw that great need. And God always gravitates toward an empty vessel. 
God always gravitates toward a humble heart. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And when Jesus saw them, His heart went out to them. He was moved with compassion because they fainted and they were scattered abroad like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them and realized that they were people without a spiritual leader. In Matthew chapter 14, the Bible said Jesus went forth. He saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. It was the compassion of Jesus that motivated him. Compassion was the trigger of the miraculous in their lives. The compassion of Jesus was so clearly seen in the story of the woman taken in adultery. She's caught in the very act. She's dragged into the presence of Jesus while he's teaching a Bible lesson. They say to him, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Moses in the law commanded that she should be stoned. But what do you say? Here is Jesus who is God in flesh. He is the judge. He is God. He is the power of God to judge this woman. What do you say? The law says kill her. And they're trying to accuse Jesus. They're trying to trip him in his words. He stoops down and he writes in the ground. Everybody likes to, wants to know what he wrote. When you get to heaven, you can say, what did you scribble in the sand? He acted like he ignored them. And then he lifted himself up and he looked at all of them. And he said, he that is without sin among you, first cast a stone at her. Jesus didn't say she doesn't deserve to die. She does deserve to die. So which one of you big guys can stand here today Hold up a stone of accusation, a stone of judgment, a stone to put this woman to death and say, there's no sin in me. I am righteous enough in the law to judge by the law and stone this woman to death. And then Jesus just bent back down and he began to write in the sand again. And we want to know, what in the world were you writing? Some people speculate, I don't I think he was kind of just doodling in the sand. Some people think, well, he was writing sins, writing names. Maybe it was the name of the woman that that man committed adultery with. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. But when they heard what Jesus said, go ahead. If you have got it all together, if you don't have sin in your life, just go ahead and cast the first stone. But the Bible said that they, being convicted by their own conscience, because they know. They were not God. They knew that they were not righteous enough to judge by the law. They went out one by one, from the oldest even to the youngest. And finally Jesus was standing there alone with that woman. Jesus lifted himself up and he said, Woman, where are those nine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee? He had the right to condemn her. Go and sin no more. Now for all the people who think that grace is a license to sin, Jesus did not say go and sin some more. But condemnation never set a person free. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. Every one of us stand before the judgment bar of God, condemned by our sins. 
And when I stand before him, and if he would ask the question, why should I let you into my heaven? I cannot say I've served you since I was eight years old. But I have to say, it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covered my sin. It is because of my faith in what you did for me on the cross. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. It is because of the compassion of God, the mercy of God, that I can stand before Him and say, I am clean. Only the one who... Made the laws righteous enough to judge by the law. Go and sin no more. The thief on the cross to me represents the person. Lots of angles of scripture and application of scripture. But he represents the person who wasted his whole life. We don't know how old this man was. But he's just blown it. He's lived a thief. He's dying a thief. He's condemned by Roman law. Perhaps Jewish law combined because he's hanging there with Jesus. He's hanging there dying. This is capital punishment in the cruelest fashion. And on the cross, one is railing, one is repenting. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. And in that moment of the death of Jesus Christ, those six hours one Friday, when this man deserved to die, he would never attend church. He would never pay his tithes. He would never go through welcome to the family. He did not deserve the mercy of God. There was nothing in him that he would ever do. But just because he was a living soul made in the image of God. In that time between two testaments, Jesus said, This day you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus justified him on the spot. That to me is the ultimate demonstration of mercy. That there is nothing, there is no basis for it. There is nothing this man can offer. But just because God is compassionate, just because he's in need, the Lord forgives him this day. He will be with me in paradise. If you call yourself a Christian, And you should try to be compassionate just as Jesus is. Amen? God's people, in the same way that we are called to be holy as He is holy, through the scripture we see that we are to be compassionate just as He is compassionate. In the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, the Lord said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I love Micah chapter 6. We're going to read it together. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This trilogy of ideas are repeated several times in the Bible, but to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But in the middle of these three components of pure religion is to love mercy. You walk with God and you do what is right. But just because you do what is right does not mean that you cannot be merciful. Christianity is a compassionate faith. Jesus taught, blessed are the merciful, for they shall 
obtain mercy. We see this demonstrated in the lesson of the Good Samaritan. While the priest and the Levite would not go to this man who was beaten, robbed, and left half dead. It was a Samaritan, an outcast, a half Jew perhaps, who had mercy on this man and demonstrated true religion. Because sometimes for some people, religion gets in the way of compassion. When really compassion should be the demonstration of true religion. The early church was a compassionate church. It was prosperous people, sold property and gave it to provide for the needs of poor saints. A woman named Tabitha is honored because she made all kinds of garments for widows. There is a warmth that exists between the people of faith. And when Jerusalem, now the mother of us all, comes in a time of depression and financial distress, offerings are received all over the world so Jerusalem's saints can be funded in the middle of that. The epistles, these letters to the church, are full of this idea that we, Ephesians and Colossians, we are to put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels, the King James says, a heart of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness and long-suffering, forbearing or putting up with one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, Paul would write, which is the bond of perfectness. John would write about love so much. And he said that we should love one another in 1 John 3. We know that we have passed from life into death because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. John said, hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and you see your brother in need. And, sh- and you shut up the bowels of compassion. This word bowels of compassion in the King James. This deepest part of us. Seven Greek words that are the word compassion. But deep inside of us it is suffering with another. He says you see this need. But you just shut up love. You shut up compassion. You say, I can't do that. John asked the question, how can the love of God dwell in you? And then he says, my little children, let us not love in love or in tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, why don't we let our actions demonstrate to the world? Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. It is the outflowing of compassion and love that lets the world know that we've really been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And I thought about it over and again at Tupelo this past week. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction, helpless people. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. There is a component of holiness and there is a component of compassion. I want you to be pure, but I don't want you to just be pure and set apart. That's how you live your life, separate from the world. But then as separate people, I want you to go back and contact the world and show true love for people that cannot help themselves. God has called us to be the church in the world. To represent who He is to people who do not know Him. And if all they see of religion is what they see on television or what they read in the news. If all they see of religion is somebody who's trying to take everybody's money 
that people are using authority to abuse people. If that's what they see of religion, if what they see of religion is people who are hypocritical and condescending. You know, we are now in our society perceived as the enemy because we do stand for truth. And I stand for truth in an uncompromising way. I'm not telling you we should compromise for truth. Truth, I think I've made that clear. But in our stand for truth, we cannot let it keep us from loving people who need truth and salvation. I've learned that sometimes compassion is birthed in us through suffering. God never wastes the hurt. And while every good and perfect gift comes from God, God does not shield His children from the hurts of life, the vicissitudes, the stuff that we have to go through. But Paul, on the other hand, would say that not only does God not spare us from hurt, but God uses the hurts that we've been through to comfort others. Second Corinthians chapter 1, he comforts us in all of our troubles so we can comfort other people. Sometimes we experience what Paul describes as a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest he would be exalted because of the abundance of revelation. Paul said, I've got this thing going on in me that I can't get rid of and I've asked God three separate times to remove it from me, but the Lord hasn't. So I still live with this thorn in my flesh. And instead of healing or deliverance, God's word to me is that, Paul, you can deal with this. My grace is enough. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, because I understand how God's strength flows to me when I cannot muster the strength in myself, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ would rest upon me. I will just plainly say, I started to say confess or admit, but it's not hard to do. But some of the times when I think I've been most compassionate is after a season of suffering in my own life when I seem to better be able to relate to people who are in any trouble, Paul would say. We need compassion to be shown to people who are in circumstances and they don't seem to be able to pull themselves out of it. And you can look at them... And say they should do something about this. It's their own fault. But remember, I preached on this some time back. That mercy shows itself even when a person is where they are by their own mistakes, their own stupidity, their own sin. Mercy doesn't say you're suffering because of some outside force. Mercy says even though you've done this to yourself, I will be merciful and compassionate to you. That's what compassion does. Amen. The connection between compassion and hope is an amazing thing. And what I want to show you here is that there are people in this world who have no hope. They feel like they're stuck where they are and nothing will ever change. But there's something about compassion that births hope in the heart of a person that doesn't think there's any way out. And the text that I read to you today is set in one of the most, you know, maybe odd places in the Bible, the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is complaining, lamenting what's going on. Lamentations 3, he said, I've been afflicted by the rod of his wrath. He's brought me into darkness. He turns his hand against me all the day. He's made my skin old. He's broken my bones. He builds against me. He's set me in dark places. He's hedged me about. He's made my chain heavy. 
I cry and shout, but he shuts out my prayer. He's enclosed my ways. He's made my path crooked. This is Lamentations 3, complaining about his situation. That he's like a bear lying in wait or a lion in secret places. He's pulled me in pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and he's set as a mark, me as a mark for his arrow. He's released his arrow and they've gone into my reins, into my will. I was a derision, he said to my people. They sang songs about me making fun all the day. He's filled me with bitterness. He's broken my teeth with gravel stones. He's covered me with ashes of mourning. He's removed my soul from off peace. I forget prosperity. My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. He's in this kind of a situation where it seems like there's no hope. He's at the bottom. Everywhere he looks, no matter where he turns, there's judgment and punishment. But then the writer says in Lamentations 3.21, This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. He said, in the middle of the darkness of my situation, in the middle of my impossibility, there's something that has dawned on me. Something has come back to me that I have forgotten. And this change of mind has brought a sense of hope. Then he says what it is. It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. He said, in the middle of my impossibility, in the middle of my own failure, it has dawned on me that God's mercies have not left me, that his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Therefore, I have hope. Something good is going to happen to you today when it recalls to your mind in the middle of your condition, your situation, your possible circumstance, if it will dawn on you that no matter how dark life may seem right now, you may feel like you're flying in a fog, but I have hope when I remember that God is merciful and His compassions fail not, that His mercies are new Every morning. It is an amazing thing that compassion often triggers the miraculous. Compassion triggers love. We see need and we respond. Pure religion, we visit. But it also triggers the supernatural power of God. Jesus was moved with compassion and he healed their sick. Jesus was moved with compassion and he fed the 5,000. It is that compassion that becomes a trigger in us to act on behalf of God. The Bible said that faith works by love and, and the faith to believe God for the impossible operates out of this trigger of compassion. So there is a supernatural power of God that is without measure that can do anything. There's nothing too hard for God. And there is a need over here waiting for God to meet this impossibility. Here is God's power. Here is impossibility. But what links those two things? It is very often faith that works by love. It is compassion on the heart of a Christian, on the heart of a God-fearing person, a Holy Ghost-filled person that God uses to be the trigger for 
the miraculous. When we lay hands on people of the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, there was an identification with that goat, with that need. And then there was the impartation of supernatural power. When we pray with people, we often are first moved with compassion. I don't have time to get into this today, but when the Lord was teaching me the doctrine of the laying on of hands as a Bible college student, He helped me understand that compassion was the thing that connected me to a need so that my faith could then let God communicate with them something powerful, this faith that works by love. You see, I cannot manufacture a miracle. I can only be a distributor of a miracle. I cannot demonstrate, I cannot manufacture the help that a person needs. I can only be a conduit through which God flows. And that's how God can use you as an instrument of compassion. You often hear me talk about Bishop now, T.L. Craft, Brother Craft. My pastoral hero in Jackson, Mississippi, 13 years under his ministry for 10 years, I served on his team there. There's a kid in my youth group named Jimbo Hood, Jim. And when Jimbo was about 10 years old before I was youth pastor, maybe even a little younger, he said he had a condition where he was just covered with warts. Nothing seemed to help him. And Brother Kraft teaching us young ministers what took place, he said, I knelt down and I, I grabbed Jimbo. And he said, then I imagined myself being a little boy covered in warts and what it would feel like to be in that condition. That's compassion. Suffering with another person. Feeling pain when another person feels hurt. And he said, and as I sat there and I imagined what it was like to be a little boy covered in warts, I began to pray for Jimbo. And that entire church family will tell you that a notable miracle took place that day as God completely healed that child of those warts. A miracle. Would you stand, please? I believe that God has a miracle for you. But I also believe that God has a miracle that He wants to perform through you. And as we are a more compassionate, tender-hearted people, We will not only do the practical things that people need, that the Bible teaches us to do. It's very important. We will also be the hands of God, supernaturally ministering healing, hope, and salvation. So I have two appeals to you today. One is whatever you need, God can provide. And we're going to gather at the front of this church to pray. But also, I want to pray and believe that you, I want to challenge you and invite you really to reach out as you pray with a person, maybe without them even saying, and there's nothing wrong with saying a need, but you could sense what's going on in a broken heart. 
I know it can happen because I've felt it happen. You can sense the pain of that person. Spiritual empathy, the compassion of God. What do you say we become a more compassionate church? Would you gather at the altar right now? I want you to bring your great need to a compassionate God. I want you to bring your sickness. I want you to bring your impossibility. I want you to bring your depression here today. Why don't you bring your lamentations to this altar just as close as you can come. Come on, Jeremiah. See, Satan would like to block out of your mind the reality that God can change your situation. Preaching helps recall to your mind the hope that you have in God. Amen.